Score, the podcast, is presented by Spitfire Audio. Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. This is Score, the podcast. I'm your host, Kenny Holmes, with my co-host, Robert Kraft. Co-hosting. And we're here inside Sacred Tiger Studios. A wonderful, incredible facility run and owned by the maestro, Henry Jackman. No sign of any tigers. Yet. It's early. You know, they come he out to He did say feed. he saw a bobcat outside, though. Once. He saw a bobcat. And I know that those tigers particularly like co-hosts for a late lunch. Meaning you or me? <laughs> I know the co. Right? Both he, of us. T- I asked him how he got the name Sacred Tiger, and he said it was of all the various tigers that were available, Super Tiger and Mister Tiger. Sacred Tiger was available, and he went for it. I I thought it'd be a much more spiritual. Yeah, a lot of the stories are kind of random. Yeah, sometimes so, there's a, a big history to it, and sometimes it's like, ah, I needed a name, so I. I think Sa- Sacred Tiger turns out to be very appropriate. As uh, Robert mentioned, our guest this week, Henry Jackman. He's an award-winning composer for a ton of really, really big movies. Uh, Kong, Skull Island, X-Men First Class, Wreck-It Ralph, and Ralph Breaks the Internet. Puss in Boots, Captain Phillips, a uh, couple of the Captain America films, Kick-Ass and Kick-Ass 2, which are Awesome. One of my favorites, which I don't know if uh, we got we'll get a chance to talk about. I hope so. Which is Big Hero Six. Oh yeah, it's I great. always love that score. And uh, Detective Pikachu. This is the end. The interview. I mean, just a wide range of diversity uh, when it comes to styles of music. He's electronic. He's symphonic. He's kind of a jack of all trades. So uh, he's Henry Jackman, and uh, we're excited to have him on today. Another thing I'm really excited about, Robert, uh, as some of you may know, may not know, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan, Mm -hmm. and this is the 30th anniversary of Seinfeld. Not possible. (laughs) It's crazy. Um, So we thought it would be cool to try a new segment where we bring you a theme song of a TV show and do, get the story behind it. Do we have a name for the segment or I think, a, any I think kind we of do. theme or something we could play? Theme song throwback oh, is what wow. it's going to be called. Love that. And um, TST. That's theme right. Theme song throwback. Yeah. So we are now going to take you to an interview with composer of Seinfeld, Jonathan Wolf. Oh, wow. It's theme song throwback. Awesome. 75 primetime network series he's written music for, 44 TV show themes. And uh, actually, there's a little connection here. Um, joining us is Jonathan Wolf. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. He yeah, is the composer cool. of Seinfeld, most notably, and that's what we want to talk about today. How are you, Jonathan? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Kenny, Robert, it's an honor. I want oh, to I want to jump in really quick though because you guys share a bond and I don't know if you know this Jonathan or maybe you do Who's the boss? Oh, that's right. That's right. I record I re-recorded your reproduced a new version of that for you guys. Yes, I don't think I first of all was aware that you were involved in that re-recording. I actually heard the new theme song. I'm not sure how many times it was recorded about a year later and thought uh, nobody called me. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I I think what they said was don't tell Rob. I didn't even know. <laughs> and Welcome uh, to Hollywood. Yeah. Huh? That was Welcome to Hollywood 101. But thank you whatever you did. 
I'm still getting the check, so you must have done a good job with your re-record. I want to get to Seinfeld, so let's catch everybody up on uh, your life. You moved to Hollywood at 17 years old, took a leap of faith. You worked on dozens, at this point, uh, television shows, some that made it, some that fell flat. But I guess that's, you know, the way it goes when you're writing TV themes and composing for television. For a while there, I was like the Kevorkian of TV shows. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So if we can fast forward to to where this began, you had a working relationship with the comedian George Wallace. Yes. In real life, Jerry Seinfeld has a best friend named George. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> and uh, Jerry called me and I, you know, I never, who's, who had ever heard of Jerry Seinfeld before that? There are a whopping four episodes ordered. Robert, tell me this. In your entire career, except for Seinfeld, have you ever heard of a show having four episodes ordered? No, that's just so odd. It's a number that doesn't make sense on some levels. Yeah. It's like we don't really... We don't really believe in this. Anyway, he called me, but he's a friend of George's. So I figure, okay, I'll do the four episodes. They're going to burn them off in the summertime. And Jerry described to me in that first phone call the following sound design problem. He envisioned Hmm. the opening credits of his show. At the time, it was a pilot called the Seinfeld Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And he wanted a catchy, recognizable signature music theme that would play along with his comedy monologue, but that would not interfere with the audio of his stand-up material. And that, to me, sounded like a recipe for conflict. Yes, no kidding. Audio conflict. So I watched some of his comedy material and noticed that Jerry's delivery has a unique, funny rhythm to it. Old people in Florida, they drive slow. And they sit low. (laughs) Right? That is their motto. The state flag of Florida should be like a steering wheel with a hat and two knuckles on it. The pacing of his words, the phrases and inflections have a musical quality. I based the rhythm of the Seinfeld theme on the rhythms of his speech patterns. Perfect. And Jerry's voice became the melody of the theme. And I pitched that to him on the phone. And that left turn signal on from when they left the house that morning. Right? That's a legal turn in Florida. It's known as an eventual left. My job, Jerry, will be to accompany you in a, in a way that is creative but does not interfere with what's going on. And old people get to a certain age where when they back out of the driveway, they don't look. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they just feel like, well, I'm old, and I'm coming back. I survived. Let's see if you can. For example, Jerry, the organic human nature of your human voice might go well with the organic human nature of my human lips and tongue and finger snaps. Like this. <laughs> And I had his attention because, as you know, anytime you're doing a pitch, you got to get their attention right away. No kidding. Looking around. The bass line that a lot of people know, it in general is in an audio range that does not compete with his voice. I was actually, I had the lips queued up to play, but uh, that was a way better experience uh, with the the live 
popping. <laughs> um, anyway, since his stand-up comedy routine was different each episode, the theme music had to be adapted each week to fit his routine. This is unique at the time, right? I mean, most most shows didn't have a new variation. Sometimes they have that nowadays, but things have evolved yeah, no, a little bit. From, it was from Mars at the time. The greatest news of this story so far is that Jerry didn't hear you go and say, okay, that guy's crazy because who would think that he'd be open to that? And then the next part is at NBC, what did they think? In your film, Danny Elfman said, you know, there's only one rule. There are no rules. There are no rules. But there is an approval process. <laughs> yeah. And in the case of NBC, uh, once the four had aired and, you know, nobody saw those four episodes, uh, we just assumed we were done. But there were a couple people at the network who really believed in the show. There was a meeting and I was at the meeting because number one on the list was the music. Wow. That if we're going to do a second season, these are the things we want to change. And Larry David was there and Jerry was there. And uh, let's talk about the music. He said, what is that sound? Is that even an instrument? Could we not afford real music? It's, it's weird. It's distracting. It's annoying. <laughs> and at that, Larry David's beady eyes lit up. He goes, what? What? Is it, it's annoying? Really? And I said to Larry, look, I'll change the music. It, look at that list. It's a long list. You've got a lot of other battles to fight. This is easy. I'll be back later today with a new music. He goes, don't you dare. Shut <laughs> your face. Get out. You're done here, Wolf. And he threw me out of the meeting. It's just <laughs> remarkable. I am so amazed. And, of course, the music stayed. Now, the funny coda to all of this is that list of changes, none of them happened. It's a testament to so many things. Larry David's brilliance and vision. And stubbornness. And stubbornness. Well, and you have to think about it this way, too. This isn't multi-hundred million dollar Larry who can walk and do whatever he wants. This is Larry who's putting it all out there on a show that is on the chopping block makes it here. even more remarkable yeah i'm gonna turn it around to make it a sad tale please i was not the first composer on seinfeld oh that's even better isn't that sad that some you know that there's there's a guy out there who did the pilot people you know how many people talk about we should go out this is what they're talking about <laughs> this whole thing we're all out now no one is home not one person here is home we're all out there are people trying to find us they don't know where we are <laughs> Did you read? I can't find him. Where did he go? He didn't tell me where he was going. He must have gone out. This guy, he did an okay job on the pilot, and the music was good. It just did not. It, first of all, it was not a sonic brand. It did not instantly identify the show with an earworm so recognizable, so unique that people from another room with their head in the refrigerator would go, ooh, what's this Pavlovian response? I want to watch this show. He didn't do that. Mm -hmm. And so I took his job. I think the real takeaway from this tale, though, 
is look how right Larry David was. Mm -hmm. I mean, the world is a better place, and I rarely start any sentence that way these days because of your theme being part of Seinfeld. I hear it here as we're playing little samples of it, and it makes me smile instantly. <laughs> Larry David had a moment where that could have gone south, and you could have written, It's Jerry's show, it's Jerry's show. That could have been your theme. Something like that. Instead, we got exactly what you did, which is so wonderful. Thank you. Well, you can follow Jonathan Wolf at Seinfeld Music if you want to get in touch with him. Jonathan, this has been an absolute pleasure for you to join us on Theme Song Throwback. Robert, Kenny, thank you. Oh, wow. It's Theme Song Throwback. Awesome. I think Jonathan Wolf is just exceptional in so many ways, creatively truly remarkable solutions to all those problems that he faced with different input from composer and the studio. But he also made some interesting life choices to duck out of Hollywood yeah. and move to Kentucky for That's his crazy. family. I, I salute him for being that brave. Especially coming off of that success. I mean, there was probably people calling left and right, oh my God, come up with the next Seinfeld theme. It's such a staple with the show, I mean, he's right. When you're ducking your head into the fridge and you hear that, ding, 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 you're like, oh, Seinfeld's on. Yeah. And those episodes don't get old. I mean, there's a reason they're in syndication so much. I think it's actually, it's what he did is one of my favorite things to do, which is leave as the party peaks. Because mm-hmm. then you're never sort of hanging around and seeing, God, the party's kind of thinning out and nobody really wants to dance with me anymore. He got out at the top, and well, it's a really interesting choice. That's actually something that happens in Seinfeld. Jerry says, it's showmanship. Go out on a high note. You say a good joke, crowd's laughing. You all right. Have a good night, everybody. Take it easy. And uh, well, I'm going to walk off the stage now. It's Jonathan Wolf probably scored that episode and said, hmm, interesting idea. Kentucky in the crosshairs. Right. Oh, man. Well, uh, that was... A really cool experience, and uh, again, it's crazy. Seinfeld, 30 years. 30 years, and we have coming up Henry Jackman, right? Henry Jackman, we're here inside Sacred Tiger Studios. Coming up after the break, we're joined by Henry Jackman. Stick around. Hey, SCORE fans, if you enjoyed that theme song throwback segment with Seinfeld composer Jonathan Wolf, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get SCORE the podcast, and we're going to put a bonus episode up with the entire raw interview with Jonathan Wolf. While you're there, be sure to click subscribe, rate, and review. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. What about strange lands and escape from the everyday? It's brilliant, George. Before anyone knew them by name. Who's a good boy, Indiana? 400 grand? Let me explain. George, that's our money. Blockbuster. Following the spectacular failures. Sir, sir, are you all right? And the unexpected triumphs. I told you, George. I told you. A six-part immersive audio series. Blockbuster. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other platforms. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back. We're here in Sacred Tiger Studios with our guest this week, 
Henry Jackman, what award-winning a composer. Day. What a beautiful day at Sacred Tiger. Thanks for having us. Well, Sacred. thanks for inviting me. It's a beautiful view. You can see all the way, I think you can see all the way to Japan on a clear day from here. Uh, which it, would be If you have eyes like a hawk. Uh, Learn from Henry, who is a great birder among his many skills, that there are... You told me there's a, a Cooper's. That's oh. right. For any ornithologist out there, uh, I've so far counted 54 species of birds. Or- Not all at the same time. Ornithologist? Uh, that's a p- posh word for bird watching. Oh, ornithology is oh, great. Man. And also, the, if for all of you jazz fans out there, needless to say, we're going to get to this interview. But all of you, <laughs> here, here's a extra credit question. Can you identify that? Oh. Write in your answer. <laughs> Ornithology by Charlie Parker. Oh. oh. Built on the chords of the standard How High the Moon. Let's we, move on. We should have known. <laughs> yes. So Henry and Robert are old friends. You guys have worked together. But for those of us that are, we just met, catch us up a little bit. You grew up in London. What's, uh, are your parents musicians? How did you jump into this world of Film music. For sure. Well, I'll try and keep it brief because, because not, I'm no spring chicken, so the musical history kind of stacks <laughs> up a bit. But in a nutshell, um, I'm really lucky because uh, my father was a composer, my grandfather was a musician. It was all in the family, so I was always encouraged to do music, which is a big deal because, I mean, half the battle is you get a lot of people with talent, and uh, if you don't have support around you, you know, it may not go anywhere. I went to St. Paul's Cathedral Choir School as a little uh, chorister, having to wear an Elizabethan ruff and Mm. cassock, singing four hours a day of 15th, 16th, and 17th century religious music in the world's second biggest cathedral. So that was incredibly formal and classical. Did you like it? I know a lot of kids are forced into music as a kid, and they're like, ah, I don't want to go to piano lessons. Were you into it, or were you... Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, if you described it now, it would literally sound like Hogwarts. It (laughs) It would appear monastical, uh, incredibly disciplined, and not much to do with the late... 20th century 20 it was more like a late 1940s 50s type of super discipline we had to sing grace before meals in three-part harmony in latin that's you know? amazing but what a <clears throat> but i knew di- exactly i didn't know any different and and the main thing about it is it's unusual aged eight to be part of a musical institution who's standard whose bar the quality is like being in the lso or being in the right. you know la philharmonic we had this incredible choir master and we were expected to sing Pal- uh, palestrina and talus and haydn and mozart and all the rest of it in the cathedral at the highest possible standard and you just get used to it and you would be preparing for performances as well or services it was mostly one of the things actually this that's a really interesting question because i I'm convinced that the, it, the the reason that's a good question is the answer is it's actually all religious service. All of these rehearsals and all of this music we're singing is never um, the choir being famous. It's just in support of a service. So it would be like an even song or yeah. mat, all these various you know religious services. Now I'm actually not a devoted religious person, but what's interesting about that is all of the talent and energy and expertise isn't for sort of self advancement it's in service of something else and i think one of the reasons when i found myself in film music as opposed to the record industry which by the way i also i learned loads in the record industry and we you know we've spoken about trevor horn and 
uh, various various different things in the record industry, but he was a huge influence. But one of the things I think that I gravitated to in film music is it doesn't matter what you're doing m- musically in terms of your own ego. The point of it is it's actually in service of a That's different wonderful. function. That is a wonderful... And I found that a relief. One of the things I found exhausting yeah. about the record industry is you build up these mini deities who are the artists. And if you're lucky and that person's David Bowie, then they almost... Then, <laughs> then it's they, a major they deity. Are, they are like mini deities. But as we all know, of all the millions of recording artists, there have been only a handful are, you know, the equivalent of the Buddha in terms of, you know... It's a very, very astute of. Right, the record it? industry is based on these mountains of ego that you hope will stay for longer than one week. <laughs> yeah. And they usually collapse. And right. everybody's Which is horrified. natural. Which yeah. is natural. And, uh, but you're right. In film music, you are in the service of, at this point, it's not uh, a church. It's But a, a cause that yes. is pre-existing. Someone has had an idea. Someone's had a vision. Someone has a story. And you're being asked to bring together all of your skills to assist and help and enhance as opposed to, hey, what do you want to write today? Because we're all going to do exactly what you want. We're going to play all your... It's a slightly different emphasis. And whereas it would offend uh, some people's ego, because well, not even ego, meaning if you're a recording artist, you're more used to, look, look, I write songs. This is what I do. So I can't maneuver too... You know, I don't know how to write a score for a 14th century... You know, imagine <laughs> something set in Italy in the 14th century and you're a rock artist. It's like, well, you know, that's not really what I do. Whereas... <laughs> Psychologically, as a composer, I, I found it a bit of a relief that the the process reminded me of this other thing where you work really hard, but you're aiming to put your skills into the service of something. I want to ask a question about what you just said, just in terms of your process or composer's process. Say you were handed a 14th century story and movie, or let's say you were handed a... 19th century Spanish drama or an Asian mystery story, do you, and I ask this, not you specifically, but what do you think, do you have to research? Do you, as a screenwriter does, you know, here's a story about something you don't know, or I always wonder about Ang Lee. He'd do a movie about cowboys, then he'd do a movie about a tiger in India. Mm Mm-hmm. He would research it. Do, yeah. do you feel that as a composer, you sometimes go and research so you know the sound of what you're looking for? That's a really good question. It's sort of yes and no. And also it depends, which is, sounds like a politician. Like, <laughs> no, it's a three-part but, answer. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll, I'll expand yes, a bit. Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> yes, no, maybe. <laughs> well, what I mean by that is it, it's, it's case-dependent because sometimes a director will be operating in a period let's say i don't know like the first world war or something but may have a very specific plan to do something completely counterintuitive let's please not go period let's not go like i don't want to hear anything sounds like elgar or edwardian let's do something radical let's make the savagery of the first world war you know if it was like some director who's like 32 he said is there any way we could do like an electronic score of course edm yeah let's do let's do and you know it it happens. Who knows? And you know what? It might work, right? So there's that option, in which case the answer is no. The whole point is whatever you do, don't research um, the <laughs> yeah. musical vocabulary of 1914 right. in Western Europe uh, concert music or whatever, because that's exactly what they're trying to avoid. And then when that isn't the plan, and it would be useful to um, incorporate some uh, musical vocabulary and style of the time, 
the, the answer is yes, but with a caveat, because it's not yes and let's go all the way so it's academically accurate. Perfect. Yeah. Because supposing, um, I don't know, let's say you, something was set in, and I can only speak for myself, if something was set in 16, 16th or 15th century Europe, just because I've got this ridiculous musical education right. that, I was, that I was lucky enough to have, my brain would go, ooh, you know what? Then we could, we could explore modal harmony because it's <laughs> pre-diatonic. Because I had to sing all that, Talis and Palestrina and William Boyd and all this music, then I feel like even though an audience are not necessarily schooled in the history of harmony and music and whatnot, there would be an authenticity without copying. Here's, here's the, the important part of it. That doesn't mean you go and get out your scores of Palestrina and do a straight-up rip-off right. of 15th century music because that's just pastiche. I mean, in fact, I had to do that at Oxford. You get given four bars of Palestrina and you must continue to write the following 60. That's a hard assignment. In, in, yeah, well, you find out there's a lot of rules in that kind of music and it, in order to create idiomatically consistent music and you follow all these rules about parallel fifths and exposed octaves and blah, 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 and you end up with a piece that sounds exactly like Palestrina. That isn't what you should do. If you're smart you'll end up being able to write for this fantasy movie that we've constructed in our heads that's set in 15th century Italy, for example. I don't know. It's, it's, it's got go it comes yeah. out this summer. Yeah, right. Is there any Va- co- Corruption at the Vatican. Yes. You know, the oh, cardinals versus I the like people, that. the Medici there, family. There may be a murder. There's definitely a murder. Uh, <laughs> Is this a writer's room or yeah, what are we yeah. doing? <laughs> we'll, 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 get, we'll, we'll get around to that later. And, and so you would, if you were smart, you would somehow pull into, if it was a soup, you yes. know, and you're making a soup. You would cut up a few vegetables from 15th century Italy and just slip them into the soup, but the but it would still feel like film score. That is a perfect answer, and that's what I wondered. You answered my question, which is, uh, you know, it's the soup. And you don't necessarily. The only reason, without sounding arrogant, just because I've had this whopping great musical education, which thankfully I only got to describe the first part of it, i.e., going to this um, cathedral choir school. The the reason I feel like that is is having had to learn everything from Palestrina and Talis through Wagner and Szymanowski and Debussy and Brahms and Beethoven and whatnot, you've got all these box of tricks so that if there is a movie or any point when you're doing a movie score that you're able to pull on it, you know, go for it. I think that is a perfect segue to say where in Ralph Breaks the Internet does Palestrina and Brahms <laughs> and Beethoven? Um, well, actually, and the answer is, I bet a lot uh, in a very subtle way. That, that's a really good question because the point about um, a movie like Ralph Breaks the Internet is the whole other side of my extremely fortunate and lucky career comes in because as we were just touching on earlier, I worked in the record industry for a bit. And I was Can like, you tell the story just for... My oh, I never got around to me, uh, how, how I met you. That That's was right. A, I've ignored I, a specific request. The, the, this is a, you know, a legend in, in the music business. Was it at a deli? Most of his no. meetings are at deli. This one wasn't at a no, deli, it, though a deli <laughs> may have been on either side of this meeting. Quite, quite possibly. Surprised. Like bread. But yes. no, it's a good point to bring it in because <laughs> the person who from whom I learned a, a load, not only in his actual presence, but he was such a big influence he was a sort of culturally significant presence was trevor horn correct who's a huge um english record for those who to my amazement may not know who he is he was a huge english record producer he's been successful from you know 80s onwards 
And his revolution was, uh, I remember him once telling me that he, all he was trying to do in his early years was make records sound as good as the American ones. He always felt like the American ones sounded like really well made. And a lot of English ones had cool ideas, but they sounded a bit parochial and a bit sort of crappy. Really? That's funny. And the funny thing is, and he sort of pioneered this jigsaw technique of, of building up a record production with endless detail and... Uh, instead of the idea of let's get a band in a room, basically record them, do a couple of overdubs, there's your record. <laughs> Trevor invented, the, you know, he was obsessed by technology, which yeah. is easy now. Everyone's got Pro Tools, everyone's got Cubase and all the rest of it. It's very easy. But what Trevor was doing was a huge influence on, on you know, you just have to listen to it. So actually, I can, I can fill in a blank here that leads to your story, which is Trevor Horn was also my favorite and is my favorite record producer. And I was working on the movie Anastasia at Fox, which was a lovely animated film. Don Bluth, the great animator, had put together a movie, and we needed the big end title single. And uh, I believe Richard Marks was asked, he's a great songwriter, to write us a record. And at that moment, Donna Lewis had the number one record in the world, which was turns out to be a one-hit wonder. God bless her. But, of course, that was the moment that we called her and said, could you and Richard Marks do a duet at the end of Anastasia? Um, And a song was written that we all approved. I guess either, I think Richard and Donna co-wrote it. And then I had the opportunity because of the beautiful chair I sat in, head of music at Fox, where you could call people like Trevor Horn, who I didn't know, but I called him and found this remarkably nice man on the other end of the phone and said, of course I'll produce yeah. your record. Um, he came to the U.S. Uh, where he actually had a, his own studio also in Los Angeles, came from London, to produce the record. And this is where our story continues. The first time I came to L.A., I was working you know, on that, on that record. So, in fact, with that, I mean, we've worked together loads on movies, but when I think about it, I probably ended up in the same room as you, probably hiding at the back, fiddling around with a SCSI drive for a Roland 760 for, for that record. And but, it was not a happy moment, and I'll tell you why. Because uh, I hired Trevor Horn to produce the song. We actually went to dinner in Los Angeles that night and then sat in his car where he popped it in to the dashboard so I could hear it. And I'm like, man, this is going to be great. And he plays the track. And I have to say, the most dreaded thing you could ever say in that situation, your favorite record producer, the (laughs) big singer. I don't like it. I don't like it. Oh. (laughs) I said to Trevor, I, I, um, can you play it again? Which is usually... You're doubling I, down then. I, well, I usually think maybe I missed it the first time and maybe, you know... <laughs> He's either going to have second fault. thoughts or right. really not like or, it. Or then. maybe I'll hear it and say, wow, now I understand what you're doing because you always figure with a great artist, they may be ahead of you. They may know something you don't. He plays it again and the most beautiful thing that I learned that night was what being a graceful genius does, which is what Trevor did. It was just a great, cool track, but it was not in any way would fit with Anastasia. And Trevor said, as I braced myself, 
let me fix it. Give me a day. Yeah. And by the way, the next day, literally, he came to the Fox lot and played me my favorite Trevor Horn production. He just nailed it. Now I know that that night. I think I, I do remember a late night. <laughs> Henry Jackman <laughs> was the secret weapon no. crouching under the console. <clears throat> I, I was a small cog in the process but the interesting thing about that whole era is having had after all the speech about you know running around some um ancient antiquated school learning you know 15th century church music and whatnot i then did a full teenage rebellion and tried to be too cool for school didn't want anyone to know i'd had all this classical education was lucky enough to work with trevor and then started working a lot more radical like electric you know i i spent ages banging out sort of drum and bass records in, in me and this guy Andy Gardner in a basement in Soho and like got into the whole late 80s like rave scene and early 90s and I, I, I remember my poor parents who'd <laughs> watch me play you know Mozart's Third Horn Concerto at the school concert and everything were like what's happened <laughs> all they can hear is like <laughs> And, you know, there's all this sort of complex. I, I was writing all these sort of um, sonatas when I was about seven, and now all they could hear is, like, breakbeats slamming out of my room. And, there's uh, a common thread here with the, <laughs> the terrified parents of a musician who will later buy their house or buy them a car and say, hey, remember all those years? But uh, To be fair, my father was so eclectic that when I was a kid, I could be summoned for one of two reasons. And sometimes uh, he was very eccentric. and go, Henry! Come here, and I'd come downstairs, and and he'd have Graceland on, and he'd be like, "You have to check out this. This baseline is just sick, right?" <laughs> and then two days later, I'd be like, "Henry, come to the kitchen," and he's listening to Radio Three, which is a very sort of highbrow um, BBC station, and it would be Bartok's Miraculous Mandarin. He's got the score out, and go, "Just listen to the woodwinds." Oh, that's so beautiful, though. It's and just, it could be either. It would. It, it, it could be anything from from the baseline of you know fretless bass part that was just ridiculous, or or the woodwinds in Bartok. So I think the real question is, what happened that evolved from that basement moment to Los Angeles? film composing and i know our first picture together but there might have been one that preceded it we did gulliver's travels oh yeah a magnificent yeah. opus but there was um, some good there was some cool oh they were very cool the music was super cool um there were actually some great funny moments too uh yeah. some great comic moments but there has to be this moment either an epiphany in that soho basement or somebody calls you here i'm not sure what happens it takes you to a place where you wed these two yeah. factors in your life well, that's a very good question there was a the bridge mo the, i think i just <clears throat> i remember my father saying well i was busy trying to explain to him why drum and bass was 15 times cooler than you know um beethoven and von williams put together <laughs> and he was so patient he's like yeah no i get it no it does sound pretty cool you but still feel that way no <laughs> no, I, I, no, there's nothing wrong with drum and bass, but you know, you get you get sort of ideological when you're 21 or whatever. Right. So, so my dad, being very eclectic and patient, goes, "Look, it's great, but all I'm saying is, with all the musical education you have, there'll come a point where you'll get bored with it because the vocabulary of that music will be insufficient to express what you want to do." And you know, when you're 21, you're like, "Yeah, whatever." <laughs> um, and then, sure enough, even when I was working in the record, towards the end of the record industry, I always found myself trying to slip in string arrangements and trying to, like, morph the chords in the second verse to get something a bit more experiment. And I started, even though, the, as we all know, there are beautifully made pop records, due to the nature of a song, verse one, bridge one, chorus one, verse two, you know, there's endless room for 
creativity in there. But if you've studied music from Palestrina to, um, you know... Frankie uh, goes to Hollywood. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Then your toolbox, you've got all these toys that you want to use. And I, I, I started to get frustrated. And one album that I thought was the closest to expressing a lot of this, I remember hearing Bjork's album, Vespertine, hmm. which to me was more like art music. It, it, they were songs, but they had string arrangements, choir, harp, incredibly innovative electronica that was just all over the place. It was great. And I thought, ooh, now that is sexy. And I did my own semi-pitiful version. Having been influenced by that, I did this album called Transfiguration, hmm. where I took um, known pieces like Henry Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. There's a famous aria in there. And then sort of produced it uh, as if it was a massive attack record. So, oh, so it had a string arrangement, but it had, you know, all this kind of thing. So I was obviously kind of trying to find my way in there somewhere i had never thought about film music ever some not somehow my friend elisa gave this album to bob badamy who's Lovely. a legendary uh music editor who hangs out with hans zimmer a lot now as we all know i bet you all around the world various cds are trying to get their way to answer but they probably never even get to his office right so again i'm completely lucky bob listens to it and goes, oh, actually, this is quite interesting. I think I will play this to Hans. Hans, you should check this out because it's not, you know, oh, listen to the CD, blah, blah, blah. So Hans hears it and goes, ooh, no, that is quite interesting. Where, and, and so I get this phone call where I have the slightly confusing experience of hearing something I've written coming down the phone because he's blasting it, going, <laughs> and he just goes, did you do this? And I'm like, S sorry, who, who's this? And I'm confused because I'm, why am I hearing, have I got a feedback? Because I'm in my studio thinking, well, I just finished mixing. Why am I, this is odd. I don't know how I could be hearing the mix down the phone. And he goes, uh, th uh, this is good. Uh, you, we, let's, let's hang out. So I just hung out with him. And it was like all these light bulbs going off because I suddenly remember my dad's words, you're going to get bored in the record industry. And Han, what I love about Hans, he's so provocative, right? <laughs> so we have this long conversation, no doubt, <clears throat> with me prattling on way too much about all this, you know, musical education I've had. And he says two super provocative things. The first of which is like, well, what are you doing in the record industry? It's a complete waste of time. Mm. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> which turns out that he was, it was correct in Prescient. my case. Yes. And uh, and then the other thing you said, of course, well, the thing about film music um, is it's not really about music at all, which is, is he loves doing things. Like, so so obviously don't take that literally. Of course, film music involves music. But because he could see that I was full of blah, 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 you know, having gone to these various, um, you know, post schools and studied music and had, you know, blah, blah, blah. The point he was trying to get across was the single most important thing about film music is helping the story lovely which is a really important point meaning you could i mean hopefully you'd never have to make this decision but if you were a producer and you could hire stravinsky brought back from the dead who is one of the world's leading 20th century culturally significant concert composers who's on a mission to ignore the picture completely and do his own thing versus an averagely skilled composer who absolutely understands the narrative and how to support the film for film music 
amazingly, you would go for option B. Plan B. Plan B, because plan A is going to produce a stunning piece of music that should be performed at the Walt Disney Concert Hall, but it's going to actively ruin <laughs> your film. Actively repel, I actively think. Actively repel. Right. So the point being, uh, one, of, one of the things I loved uh, many times when I've had conversations with Hans, especially when I st- started out and didn't know much about film music, he would say a, 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 an almost sort of bomb-dropping statement, which I subsequently came to go, oh, yeah, now I see... Because if you've only met someone for five minutes and about the first thing they say is that, oh, well, film music hasn't got much to do with music. It's mostly to do with telling stories. Like, wow, what does that mean? Yeah. And then as you, even many years later, I go, oh, I that was like a grand ideological statement, which I now It's something Hans actually understand. amended my, I had a conversation with him where I said, film music, I said, is something like, 80% politics and 20% music. <laughs> well, that's the other part of it. Because cake. I was so, whatever we were working on, you know, of course Hans was knocking it out of the park and somebody was saying, I, I don't, is, does he have to put that noise in the queue? You know, is it, <laughs> I'd say it's just brilliant, it's incredible. But we had to smooth it out and talk to whoever the director was. But when I said it to Hans, he said, actually the ratio is politics music and storytelling mm-hmm. and he really was emphatic about how being able to tell the story and knowing when to yeah. actually be silent sometimes no music is right but the the point he he was so ahead of me he, he took one look at me and said look you're you're some sort of you're weird because you're half electronica drum and bass blah 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 but you've got all this <laughs> massive yeah. backdrop yeah. of and it's completely waste that that was his provocative remark about you wasting your time it's like you know you're just you were way ahead of the game yeah. Well, I mean, well, everything evolved into what your skills were. But in my now. idiocy, right, because, because you know, if at 21 you've got a hooded top on and you're banging out drum and bass tunes, in your head, a film, compu- a f- film composer is some sort of slightly conservative uh, <laughs> bearded conductor who's writing pompous um, orchestral music. Right. And because I'd had such a, uh, I don't know, for one, uh, an elite, elite, a musically elitist education, the last thing I wanted was more, ah, let, uh, yes, Henry Jackman, we're going to have symphonically, you know, written music. What I wanted to do was be cooler than school. So it's genetic. You're marrying of pop and classical. That's what dad was doing, right? It, Which is real- why he wasn't pompous and snobbish, because right. he, he was just as excited, as I say, about Bartok as he was, you know, some of Chris Squire's baselines when he that could. is so that's great. crazy but you you're right he, henry in some ways presaged the electronic the marrying i mean it's like anything people say you know henry what do you think about uh orchestral versus electronic music in in, in film scoring and you know, why do you have to choose anymore? right exactly you don't it's- but the, the great thing about bumping into hans was similarly uh, then some, well, what i mean about my idiocy it was hans could see from a mile off that i've got all the paint pots that would be handy for modern film score and when i say modern film score that could be any, meaning it could be we need something that is straight up symphonic you know, you've got no excuse, Jackman. You've had the education. If, yeah. you, if you can't nail it, you're an idiot. Uh, you know, meanwhile, you've got all these other skills. Now, because I had this woefully misconceived idea of a, it being, you know, an older man's game, you know, because, I don't know, when, it, if you watch Star Wars as a kid, you have an image of John Williams as this sort of senior chap and you're busy writing, you know, electronic music and whatnot. So then having hung out with hands, it was all these light bulbs went off at once. I was like, oh, I get it. 
this is actually great, meaning, um, well, we don't know that. I might be rubbish at it. But as an opportunity, this suddenly makes sense because instead of being stuck in a box where only a few of these musical styles and ideas get used, the opposite is true. It is now celebrated that you know about this and this and this and this and this and this and this musically. Whereas if you're a recording artist, it's like, well, hold on a minute. You know, you can't go all over the place. The biggest thing about um, film score that I love is precisely what renders it sort of impossible as a recording artist, meaning within the space of six months, you might be going from writing um, a piece of music for that's going to be performed in a church for basses, tenors, altos and sopranos with a church organ. And then six months later, you could be doing something that's closer to Diplo or dubstep. or you, and, and that's perfectly normal and in fact you have to do that in your career if you're a recording artist you jump around that much it, 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 it just you know people get confused you can do a bit more as a record producer but the point about movies is if you're flexible enough and i'll finally answer the question you, you asked about half an hour ago about the because the ralph breaks the internet is a is ah. a good example of i was going to say that's like a dream come true exactly for you because on the one hand if you're going to write a piece of music that represents the internet it would be a bit disappointing if that was only orchestral that, with, with all this I mean we're sitting in my studio here and I'm looking at a um, Korg MS-20 a lot of blinking yeah. lights a lot of blinking lights a lot of old school analog kit and so on what a waste if the internet didn't have a whole layer of electronica in it you know um, a lot of sequential stuff I love it all of that's or none of that's plugins that's all analog kit oh it's wonderful it's such a good jam. it's sort of friendly you know what's interesting about Ralph Breaks the Internet is very often what I find in movies is in Act 1 and Act 2 the for want of a better word unique uh, colour is most prevalent because you're creating the world so for example that's the very first cue in the second film because it recapitulates from the from the original record, record Ralph, Ralph. and it yeah. sets their 8-bit world and you know their universe mm -hmm. and so on generally speaking by the time if it's a good movie by the time we get to act three the stakes are higher relationships are frayed whatever giant enemy in the case of uh, ralph breaks the internet his own insecurities become embodied in some giant sort of king kong figure that's generated out of all these replicas of him which have come about as a, res as a result of a virus and <laughs> I won't bore you with all these details point being by that point the movie's become quite operatic and so if you listen carefully to the score for both the first record Ralph and Ralph Breaks the Internet you get cues towards the end where what's being called on is less of what we just heard and a bit more, I mean, I'm nowhere near as good, obviously, but like German tone poems and like Straussian, you know, the orchestration goes huge and they're some of the same themes you just heard on the synths are now taken up in a big... in those themes, the seeds of how orchestrated differently... You'd be able to... They're heroic and... And then you can transfer them over and if you've got the symphonic chops, suddenly... And the advantage of that is you're not stuck in a... If everything sounds like the piece we just heard, then you feel like you're in that introductory level. And by the time you, I often find when, when you really need to crank the stakes, there's always a layer that symphonic music can give you. It's not to say it's impossible with electronica, not at all. But sometimes when things need to get operatic in their scale, and very often films do, you know, animated films, what happens is at the beginning... Things are somewhat parochial. They're usually in their safe world of one sort or another. And guess what? They're going to go on some crazy adventure that's not going to be small-minded. It's going to be visually spectacular. And sure enough, in Ralph Breaks the Internet, you end up with a pretty much a King Kong situation. And you, you don't want 
parochial. By then, you've got to take your thematic ideas and elevate them so that so, so that it, you know it feels like a legit 400 foot monster well and i wanted to ask you too not to give away too much of the movie but there are some cameos in there was this uh, including this in the score fun for you <laughs> oh yeah hilarious wait for it the my favorite thing is at the end i don't know if i have the whole cue well it's only it's about a minute long it's the dissolve at the end here we go. This is the best bit of John Williams and Empire Strikes Back. Check out this harmonic change. Oh, I think I... Uh, oh, that's right. I think I but that's the chord. Yeah. That chord is... Ba-da, ba-da. It goes... One of my favorite... Uh, one of... Uh, this is going to sound really unfair because I love... Ele- one of the things about um, electronic music, because the texture is so interesting, harmonically, it tends not to be as developed as some concert music. It's just the nature of the beast. That, that's not to say it's not any good. I mean, if you listen to... I, I think John Hopkins is an amazing electronic artist. and But I just mean some of the harmonies that you're going to... That's a really interesting thing. I always thought it was because it's very tempting, and this might not be elect, serious electronic music, but pop electronic music, to loop. And it's so, you know, take... But you can do that very intelligently. Oh, I hope so, because often it's lazy. And also boringly, yeah. (laughs) If you speak to Steve Reich, right, uh, uh, then that's how to do it intelligently. Or some John Adams is very minimalist and whatnot. It's like that line from Spinal Tap, you know, the tiny line between genius and... Stupid and clever. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember the line. It's a fine line between stupid and clever. But I'm not even criticizing. I'm saying it's just a stylistic thing, meaning um, if you you listen to a lot of Brian Eno or, or John Hopkins, or something like that it's in it's often in the and by the way there are lots of interesting harmonies but what i mean is the speed at which harmonies are evolving are much slower because it's a different when you put together an electronic uh electronic piece it's it's just different to say the vocabulary of of symphonic music right i wonder what that i mean the relationship i'd have to think about it and wouldn't want to bore our listeners with the an analysis of the harmonic language but that john williams change from that tonality to the the it's such a strange chord and so yeah but but the thing is even though it's more uh complicated that sort of harmonic language the the point i was sort of very slowly getting to and kind of tentatively because i also love dubstep which usually has about two notes in it (laughs) one of the things i sometimes miss and i'm and i think you get the 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 lineage of, say, Silvestri, Goldsmith, um, and James Horner, and obviously, and John Williams, that's the example that we're talking about now, is the, there was a bit more opportunity to be a bit more harmonically exploratory, I think. If, if you did an analysis of how many sexy chords were knocking around in film score, it's probably closed in a little bit, but, huh. but you shouldn't complain, because by the same token... In terms of uh, really cool stylistic things happening, like Sicario, you know, fantastic score, which is not going to win an award for harmonic, uh, (laughs) crazy uh, harmonic development, but is a completely different and amazingly original and very effective and beautiful approach Mm. to film score. So it's only a minor complaint. What's actually happened is the range of vocabulary and style that you could approach a film score with has massively gone up. Maybe it'll all come together in some future moment of great harmonic language expanding? Uh, well, that's what I'm always... I'll give you one example. The track The Internet on Ralph Breaks the Internet. One of the things I... Do di- we have that? 
um, I, one of the things I wanted to do is I love the chord uh, C, E, G sharp. Which, it's a raised fifth. Right. It's, a, it's, it's the right. Augmented. But the, the third is major. And because it just, it's one Correct. of those things, no one needs to know the technical boring details, yep. but it just inculcates a slightly fantastical and mysterious feeling. And Robert's going to lean over to the piano. Right. Exactly. Oh, darling. Right. So this thing. Oh, that's so beautiful. It's very, uh, something's about to happen. Right. I knew I wanted to use that harmony for the internet. So whilst there's a lot of pulses and there's a lot of sequential stuff that took me ages to do on all this analog kit, that is from the world of electronica. But the har- I wanted to steal from like Rimsky-Korsakov. And also it's a little Star Wars, you know? Yes, right, meaning it's not usual to use, if you were just a straight-up legit electronic artist, you'd be unlikely to start piddling around with those kind of chords because <laughs> it's just not, it's not, um, well, I'm, it, I'm not saying it never happens yeah. and, and I really don't want to make out, if you listen to Aphex Twin, there's all kinds of cool chords and also sure. like a detune stuff and whatnot. But my point being, generally, if you were just to fiddle around in the way that I did, Fairly quickly, you could imagine an orchestration with woodwinds, and before you know where you are, it could be a quite kind of rimsky korsakov type of piece of music. Fabulous. But I, I wanted to take that harmony, but then take a lot of the sequential, pulsy, and all kinds of stuff from the world of electronic and smash the two together, and that's what I put together for the internet track. Did you have, on Ralph Breaks the Internet, a supportive director for some of your experiments? Oh, yeah. Well, the great thing about not only um, well the f- the director on the first one was Rich Moore, and yep. it was the you know the great thing about um, in fact it's the first time I've done a movie where I've also done the first one. Oh, that's I've, lovely. I've, I've done Cap, Cap Two, but Alan did Cap One, and I've you know I've jumped onto things, but uh, and like X Men, yep. you know, it's already, there were loads of X Men before I showed up. Whereas this was the first time that I'd seeded the themes for Wreck It Ralph, and back comes the team, you know, for for the second one so this time it was rich moore and he was joined by phil for the you know so it was a team of two yeah and so i already knew rich and what but what was interesting um i remember matthew vaughan saying on kingsman 2 he goes you know i thought this would sort of be easier because we i felt like i kind of nailed kingsman and this is a sequel so why is this the most difficult movie interesting. I remember, and i remember han saying anyone who thinks a sequel is like pull out the midi files and basically bang out again need shooting yeah and <laughs> what we found um was apart from the opening cue which was a recapitulation of the thing you know we played earlier as soon as they get to the internet it's just a different movie and 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 it's almost wow it's deceptive you're almost psychologically better off uh, with a blank slate yeah it, it's actually in a way trickier that 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 it it's you're in the ball s- certain thematic ideas remain but they evolve i mean i love it because you get to play around with them so the internet theme actually is related to the wreck it ralph theme but in this new harmonic context and vanellope's theme evolves because she kind of grows up a bit so but if you're thinking oh well i'll just do a a rearrangement of this you know known thing from the first film i think out of an out of an 85 minute score only about four or five minutes was like that and the rest you had to just think anew we're going to take a quick break. That was jam-packed. Yeah. Um, a lot more to come. We're going to talk about Detective Pikachu, which is uh, coming yeah. out. Uh, Robert wants to chat about Captain America a little bit more. And I have a question about Captain Phillips. Stick around more with Henry Jackman when we return.
Hey, Matt Schrader here, director of SCORE, of film music documentary. For the latest news from the film music world, follow us on Facebook. Just search SCORE, a film music documentary. Or let us know who you want to hear next on the show on Twitter, at SCORE the Podcast. So great to have this conversation with Henry. Clearly an unbelievably interesting career you've had, Henry, and just... Uh, Such a diverse group of movies, too. From comedy to action to pulling the heartstrings, electronic. And I, mean, I actually wanted to ask one question about a movie that combines all of those things, comedy, action, and some horror. And uh, my question is specific. You and I had the wonderful opportunity to work together on Abraham Lincoln... Umpire Hunter. Um, umpire. Or, or was it Vampire Hunter? I think it was Vampire. Vampire Hunter, okay. The sequel uh, was about baseball. Right. It was uh, extremely interesting, uh, and if I may say, challenging. How do you remain calm when the music for a film continually is changing due to the fact that the filmmakers couldn't decide what movie they were making and I wanted to if there's any advice to young composers <laughs> out there we started one movie we were making a second movie I think yeah. by the end it was the third movie because we were near the end and they said I have an idea let's go all electronic. four score and seven years later right. yeah, it was yeah. I think it was three scores on this one how did you wow. handle that Henry? that's and, a very good question um you sometimes want to strangle people. Correct. I remember that. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to think of some sensible advice. The thing, the thing which I think is undeniably true is it is inherently, um, it's instability of any kind in a creative process. Um, some creative instability in a controlled way is not the end of the world. Fundamental instability in the leadership of the vision of what is trying to be achieved is fatal in the same way that it's like anything of a captain of a ship i mean if he's lost the crew and they don't you know <laughs> perfect and, and right. I'm, I'm not trying to speak it it's it's just it happens it happens for a million reasons it mm -hmm. happens it can happen because there's tension between it may well be the director does have a very strong vision but the studio disagrees with there is a million and one reasons absolutely people yep. should understand i'm not being critical trying to make I, I just write music if trying to make a motion picture is <laughs> good luck it, there are so many things you have to get right. We all know of movies where, it, on paper, it's like, well, look, the cast is great, the script is great, it's all great, it's going to be great. And then for whatever reason, it isn't. Yeah. Because as Ed Swick once told me, it, it, he goes, every time I set up a shot, you, you, it's like sort of en what is it, entropy. I can't remember the, the physics concept where you're trying to control all of these elements so that you get what you want just for this 26 seconds. And the split second you say cut, this controlled universe that you try to set up immediately you know disbands itself and yeah. the makeup looks wrong he's on the wrong spot a plane goes over you know the smoke's in the wrong place <laughs> it, it's very the point i'm making is it's very very difficult to make a movie well and, and you magnify what ed just said times how many shots in a movie and every shot yeah. has that the potential to be crap yeah right so it's very very difficult it's also very easy to criticize and go oh well this is just like you know what have a go because yeah. <laughs> right. i bet well, it's you like a sports team you know you, the chemistry 
sometimes so takes many. three or four seasons to get going. Yeah. You're taking this sporting team, so to speak, with thousands. and jumping into the Super Bowl right out of the gate and expecting everyone yes. to get along and for it to all melt. And for you to win. And that, that's probably right. a reason why directors find a composer and, and teammates that they like working with because they know they have to go back to battle and do the same thing over again. And uh, You're it's all right. about the chemistry. Exactly. So if you try, I mean, look at um, Ridley Scott and his picture editor. I mean, it's the guy's a genius. It works great. So what, you know, so Ridley's probably thinking, okay, that's one thing I don't have to worry. <laughs> you know, there's enough. And unlike a soccer team where you've got to worry about the 11 people on the pitch, you've got to worry about, you've seen the credits at the end of this. You've got to worry about, it's like, you know, there's like 25,000 people involved. So let's start by saying it's not easy, right? So when you find yourself in one of those unfortunate situations where for whatever reason, um, uh, they're having trouble <laughs> yeah. and that will inevitably impact you as a composer so it's 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 very difficult because if you the the most important part of being a film composer i always call it laying the eggs right i mean there's 90 minutes of music to write and that can be daunting or sometimes 110 the crucial part of it is the thematic and narrative ideas and the coherence of these sort of eggs that you're laying yes so if those are secured and you've got a suite or it's obviously working and the director signs up, like, I love this theme, I love this idea. Blah, blah. Once you get to there, you've got to keep making omelets, but at least you've got your eggs. Whereas if there's total creative instability, you can have the ridiculously stressful situation of you've proceeded, because writing a film school, you're not messing around. There's a lot of music to write. When suddenly the eggs require changing, because it's going from, um, you know, we need to, this is going to be a horror film. No, it isn't going to be a genre film. No, it's going to be a historical film. Those are three different approaches. The trick, <laughs> there, are, there are a couple of tricks. One is don't say that, the, obviously, this is where, you know, when we were talking about politics. If a bit like that movie, Lie, Lie, you just open your mouth and tell the truth. What you would do <laughs> is you go, I want to strangle you not once, but twice. Because you're a completely inconsistent you're like a leaf in the wind. You've no idea what you're doing. That, how, where's that going to get you? That's not going to get you anywhere. Sure. Right? So you can A, quit, or B, go, like, how, can I, how can I do something? That'll be your last job, too. The, the, yeah. Right. Why don't I try and think? Your obvious human reaction is, you know, if your child were behaving like that, you, you'd be in a position to try and educate them on how not to be quite so cretinous, right? right. <laughs> but, but since you are not in that situation, if you're not going to quit, you might as well spend the remaining time being as useful as possible but one of the good things that you learn is like i've no idea what's happening right now and that's okay yes. right meaning right now we're not quite sure if this epic creative battle between this very important person or this very important person is going to go this way or this way and we do sort of need to know but we don't know so we are floating in right. this suspect and learning to um cope with, and be okay. Yes. Uh, eventually, you reach this point of, like, actually, uh, you, there are creative situations which will have inherent and constant dissonance that may never get resolved. Yeah. So just, you know, try and learn how to live with it. I wanted to ask you, because not a lot of people get a chance to score a Tom Hanks film. Yeah. And one of the most powerful experiences I've had at a theater is at the end of Captain Phillips, there's, like, there's a shot of Tom Hanks for, I think it's a, a four minute something scene where he's rescued and it doesn't cut away. And it's, it's so powerful. Like I, I think I cried and I don't really cry in movies. When you see something like that and that kind of acting, does that change your approach? Do you think like, wow, this is amazing. Let's, let's have less music here. Or how, do, how does that experience change your approach? 
Well, that's a very good question. But funnily enough, in the case of Captain Phillips, the more obviously as a composer, you watch performances and are hugely influenced by them. A massive influence on the overall approach to that music was Paul Greengrass himself, mm. which I mean, you know, it shouldn't sound like a surprise director, but particularly um, with Paul because he has such a um, a legitimate journalistic background. He has a peculiarly um, minimalist... It's not just minimalist as in how little happens because he's very concerned in his movies to be politically neutral and he's a very politically active person. Mm. Almost, he thinks like a journalist. One of, the, one of the traditional, for want of a better word, purposes of film score is to imbue music with narrative. Mm-hmm. And so very often, you know, you're supporting something to make it heroic or you're making something have extra tension and everything. Paul's crazy trip is that it should be it has to be denuded of all of that information. And it's funny, so that scene, funnily enough, was actually one of the few cues where it obviously did blossom. Do you have you seen the end of this Love film? Yeah. Oh man. But that's about the one of the reasons you might have had that reaction is prior to this moment. Uh, there is very, very little harmonic or thematic information because of Paul's legitimate obsession with not making the Somalis feel like negative because they're pirates and not making feel the West and Tom Hanks as if they're, you know, there's to be no heroic feeling in, in the attempted rescues and all the rest of it. So it actually was a real challenge, but it was definitely an interesting creative experience because I was working with someone who, in a funny way, wanted almost no information in the music. Well, it's that, a that, very that sounds contem- counterintuitive. No, it's actually a very contemporary. I mean, I would find this, what you're describing, and I've never heard it expressed the way you did. I saw this evolve during my couple of decades at Fox. I saw it evolve from directors who were very emotional would come in and want an emotional score to what you're describing, which is I don't want the audience manipulated. Yeah, well, it's perfectly... I'm not criticizing it in the slightest. There's no... I I don't want a composer that will manipulate the audience. Basically, I want the composer to sit at the very back row of the bleachers in the auditorium and sort of prepare some music that's in the... Very much in the background of what's happening, but not tell the audience how yeah. to feel. And it depends what kind of movie you're making. Yeah. The whole point, I mean, Paul Greengrass is making a thoughtful film in which instead of having a sort of fairly obvious, much more cheesy scenario that's jingoistic and the American Navy are the heroes and the batty, nasty African Somalis are the pirates, his movie makes you much more thoughtful. Like, well, the only reason that they're doing what they're doing is their economy is so screwed anyway. They're, they're just young men. Yeah, you don't, who you don't, don't have... dislike them. No, not yes. at all. In the movie. Right. So, even though they're the villain, so to speak. Yeah, but his point is they're not. You end up just having an overall sad feeling for, about humanity in general. And that's the skill of Paul Greengrass. And he's a politically minded person whose movies are of a certain ilk. Now, if you took that approach and tried to. Uh, <laughs> if you got a Harry Potter score and went, hey, here's my idea, right? I'm going to go for some minimalist pulses and some tones. And some, <laughs> right, you're not going to get anywhere. It's horses for courses. Well, if you think about film scoring with John Wayne and um, Native Americans, 
who are the bad guys and who are the good guys, just listen to the score. Here comes the cavalry. <laughs> right. Literally. And, and right, but those kind of films are not set out as a politically neutral, you know, they're, they're it's a bit like Matthew Carnahan lives in Washington. He's a think tank guy. You know, they're completely different. These are like almost journalistic, realistic yeah. films, so they need a completely, they need completely different kind of approach. Era. Yeah. Appropriate to our era. But the only point I'm making is that just because I've got all these box of tricks, I wouldn't want to only do that. But by the same token, if I only ever did anim- animated films, I, I would miss not oh, not great. doing movies like Mosul, uh, like you know, Captain America: Winter Soldier. Yeah, well, that was that had a that had a few. The funny thing about uh, Winter Soldier is the um, people who've responded. And gone. Oh, you know, I think Henry Jones, he's not a bad composer. You know, I've heard this animator. You know, he, I like Puss in Boots, and you know, he did Monsters vs. Aliens. You know, he seems to know what he's doing with the symphony orchestra. You know, he's not bad. Those people, they hear this Winter Soldier child. They go, "What the hell's that? That's like a bunch of industrial noise." And then people who really like Winter Soldier much prefer that to oh, more symphonic. This is but, a real raw. Yeah, this is a long way from symphonic music. Wouldn't quite fit in Wreck It Ralph. <laughs> And couldn't be done without the drum and bass years. No. Love it. This is kind of different from the Marvel sound, which is more orchestral. Why did you go this route with this score? That's a massive understatement. Yeah. In fact, it was so much... Kind of different. Yeah. It's it's pretty different. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. But... um, yeah, it's not like the whole this. Uh, this was the most radical. It got. I wanted to come up with something for the Winter Soldier that was just, you know, it's completely so cool. different. Um, and in fact, if you just play, have you, have you got that second? There's a second part here. You, you can hardly. There's a. The only reason I mention this. There's a little str- ascending I string hear it. line. It's an orchestral moment. Yeah. And I just seeded this without really knowing what I was doing. It's still industrial and nuts and all the rest of it. But if you just listen to those strings, because I'll show you something in a minute. That's fine. Anyway, so it was this, you know, really brutal track. But funnily enough, if you got the, if you just play the, fl- yeah, yeah. the, you, the, the orchestra was not that important in that track. But I just slipped something in towards the end of that. Winter so it Soldier makes it thing. cinematic. But then it turned out you could then treat that. This is all the same harmonic DNA from the end of that Winter Soldier suite. It's film music. Yeah, and but that's much more symphonic. But it's the same. It's actually the same so you material. To, you had to get there. What a difference. All in the same but cue. It, but it's the same uh, material. The reason I went a bit crazy with The Winter Soldier was Joe and Anthony Russo, I just think, are brilliant. I mean, they're, they're brothers, they're directors. They did Captain America 2, 3, you know, the, the Avengers film that came out, the one right. that's about to come out. And they've got a really exciting uh, new company of their own called Agpo, where they intend to knock out all kinds of, you know, more art-based, arty kind of films. And they, especially, uh, they work brilliantly as a pair. Joe's probably like the spokesperson, as it were. And he, he's just like, uh, right, so 
it's definitely a, a Marvel film, and they're smart. They know how to keep their left foot in the Kevin Feige camp, so mm-hmm. it feels. But they've also got a strong right foot of their own, you know, artistic opinion. Perfect. And he's very courageous. And he goes, um, Henry. I said, Well, how do you want to work on this? I said, Well, you know what? I'm really excited about this. Let me just come up with a piece of music away from picture, having seen certain amount of material called The Winter Soldier. And I'm just going to go for it. And as, as Matthew Vaughan said, if look, if you're going to go down, uh, you might as well go down in flames. There's no point going down, you know, with a sort of... In a puddle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I thought, well, the thing is, the thing about The Winter Soldier is it used to be Bucky Barnes, this sort of all warm, all-American 1950s type hero. But he's become encased like Robocop in this completely messed up... His, his, uh, he's sort of a neurologically disturbed creature inside this suit so it's basically imagine robocop who's been injected with some awful hallucinogen you know um <laughs> robocop on molly <laughs> yeah right gone all wrong so i thought <laughs> that doesn't really seem like a job for bassoons or cellos or no. something. I've, and it's also very techy because he's now operating in this mechanical um you know his, uh, a lot of his body is mechanized so i said well what's the point of having spent all that time you know, in the basement, banging out drum and bass tunes. If we can't, no, it's not like it's a genre drum and bass track, but let's go and nick a load of, let's, let's, let's do something really radical and see what happens. You did it. So I put together that track, Winter, The Winter Soldier, where for the first three minutes, it doesn't even, it doesn't so even happen. you played them a track, not part of the picture. Yeah. When they first played it, did they play it as audio only, or did they play it? Well, I dragged them down to the studio, stuck right. them in my two egg chairs, one of which you know very yeah. well, and went, okay, gents. Uh, and I think I had a still frame of The Winter Soldier on a screen, like an art piece. Good. And I said, right, I'm going to play some music extremely loudly. <laughs> it's going to last six minutes and I don't think it's going to be anything in between I think you're either going to go what the f- is that and that's way too radical and I don't think we can put that in a Marvel film or you're going to get really excited about it I doubt there's going to be much in the middle but anyway here we go hit space bar turned it up to you know 90 decibels on my <laughs> massive speakers and it played and I I think the crazy thing um Dave Jordan, who's a great, uh, we know Dave Jordan, he's a music yeah. supervisor. Yeah. He was a guest on uh, season one. Yeah, sure yeah. he's really cool. Now, because he's a, a genuine music, he just loved, he got really excited about it, and he's not scared by radical. Th- and as we all know, the politics of there being directors is you, you better wait for the directors to react. Because what happens if you get really excited? Yeah. And then the directors go, we hate it. And then you, and so, you know, the, the courtesy and the protocol is generally, you know, that, but Dave was slightly unable to contain it. He kind of jumped out of his exit <laughs> and went, that is awesome and then kind of went oh uh, sorry you know settled back into his chair and thank god uh joe was like i love it i love it and i want that's uh, and 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 you know what i loved about joe he goes um not only do i love it i don't want a watered down version okay that has to go in the movie fantastic and i don't want like don't inject it with extra orange juice, you know. That's probably the best thing you can hear as a yeah. composer, right? Oh, Don't change it. <laughs> no, he's so brave. I mean, obviously it was a suite, so it's not it's not to picture yet. But I think he meant, you know, don't turn all the drums down and add more, you know, uh, conservative elements. Yeah. But And I remember saying to him, well, I'm really excited as well. But just, uh, and no offense to Kevin Feige, who's an absolute genius. I mean, look at what he's done. I would just say that maybe the very first thing we don't play is uh, given perfect. that it's a Captain America film, there's, sure. there's going to be heroic cues. Yeah. I mean, I personally would find it slightly unsettling if someone went, hey, so yeah, the composers got going on the music for uh, Captain America 2. Have a listen to this. Like, uh, <laughs> That'll set the tone in a different... Yeah, be like, okay. 
Okay. I'm. Uh, is it? I mean, uh, he's going into the matrix. Yeah. Is there any? Do you have anything else just to <laughs> check? Like we're not going completely crazy here. And to Kevin's great credit, you know, I mean, then there was the more heroic material and whatnot. And you know, we got it into we got it into the film, and you know, he was cool with it and could see that it was uh, that the film itself and the tone of the film that Joe and Antti had made warranted. It wasn't. I think that's great that they were open to it. Yes. Really great. And it wasn't a self-conscious thing of like, oh, let me prove how cool I am or anything like that. It was what the movie was. If you look at the first Captain America film, it's a period piece. It's sort of set in the Second World War. But this makes it badass in a whole new way. But And it was the the way Joe and Antti had made Cap 2 is it was a much more contemporary film, which is why it was appropriate to do that. And it was slightly less so. The third Civil War was a little bit more mythological and a bit less technological. Mm. So there was less of that. So my point being is it, it, it is horses for courses. It's not you, you shouldn't just try and do things because you think it's a good idea to represent yourself. It's it's it should work if if the movie's asking for it and, and the people you work with are brave enough. So I think wrapping up. Yeah, I was going to say we, we, we wanted to know about things going forward. Wasn't yeah. There Detective picture? Pikachu. Yeah. What can oh, we expect? That's... Well, the, I initially got worried about um uh, Pikachu because in my head I thought well this will be great because <laughs> I feel like I really want to do something that's sort of half Stranger Things half nice. Eno half Symphony Orchestra okay that's, you know uh, that's three halves so I think I that's good that's a one and a half math. Yeah, yeah that's like 150 it's like the producers the movie <laughs> well you know not as clinical as that but you know what I mean yeah uh, there's a certain there's a certain nost- you know there's a certain use of electronica that I really want anyway when they were trying to temper it, I remember thinking, well, this is just going to be really exciting. And I kept getting all these uh, messages about, oh, this is, this is going to be impossible. I'm like, what do you mean? Well, we tried this, we tried that, and this temp's rubbish, and then we tried that, and then we went all electronic, and that didn't work, and then we went all symphonic. It's like, oh, my God, nothing is working. So I was like, bloody hell. I was just <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and then um, I just spent ages, it, going back to my egg and omelette, scenario i was like look i think what needs to happen is you, i've got to lay sort of two critical pokemon eggs that somehow Perfect. combine so they're not so symphonic that you think oh really isn't pokemon an opportunity to not feel like it's a well-written symphonic score <laughs> on the other hand if you go so um parochial yeah with electronic you're like really isn't this a big move shouldn't it expand shouldn't it have a scale and everything else i've just got to square that circle which i spent a lot of time on there was one track uh, that it's called rhyme city when it comes out and that i spent it reminded me of a trevor horn thing i mean huh. i was on that the the suite that gave birth to rhyme city i think i I've, i was piddling around with that for about nine weeks wow which i know by trevor standards i mean he, you know he's probably spent four years on certain art of noise albums <laughs> but if anyone who knows film score knows that Messing That's up, a long time. Yeah, messing around for nine weeks on one five-minute suite because I was designing a lot of the everything was coming out of these like MS Twenty and uh, Roll MKS, all these old synths and whatnot. And I was designing all the sounds. So obviously, once you get going, it's quicker because I was creating all the fabric. That's fantastic. So it takes long. It's a bit nerve-wracking because if you spend that long, and the director goes, "Yeah, no, I hate that." <laughs> Then you're thinking, right, so that was nine weeks, right. uh, or whatever the hell it was. As long as you're done before it comes out. That Well, you know what my rule of thumb is? Um, because uh, to following on one of your earlier questions about like advice for younger people, I, I promise you, having 
securing the eggs is the most important thing. Don't just if you can write twenty five minutes of music and think you're getting somewhere. <laughs> if it's the wrong music, you might as well not even have the, that twenty five minutes. It's about the, the the legitimacy of the eggs. And if you see a billboard for a movie that you're working on and you haven't come up with the eggs yet, then you should. I remember <laughs> um, in two different situations. I like the word eggs and I like that uh, analogy a lot. Hans and John Powell, two of our great friends, used another word, which when I first heard it, when we would work together, I thought it sounded too, I don't know if it's simple or simplistic. They'd say, I'm still looking for the tune. And I think the tune, what do you mean? The theme of the movie? No, there's some... There's some tunes that are central, and it was yeah. their way of saying the eggs yeah. that were central, and they hadn't found it, or they <laughs> the think combination they found to it. the lock, the key. Yeah. That's exactly right. But I think one of the things that's come up today that is really remarkable, which I think everyone who's listening will hear, is how incredibly creative the job of film composing is. How much it draws from. So many things, your own personal history, your taste, your exposure to lots of different kinds of music, but also how incredibly creative Henry Jackman, our guest, is with all of these different movies from Captain America to Ralph Breaks the Internet to Abraham Lincoln, Umpire Hunter, the great (laughs) story. And you know, the third one's called Strike Three, You're Out. Strike Three, (laughs) Walk This Way. Uh, blood on the bases. Oh. I think. oh, Henry, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so oh, much for you. joining Score the Podcast. Uh, a reminder to our listeners: you can follow us on Twitter at Score the 